I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, and we are in the final chapter of this great epistle that we have been studying for some time now. As we approach this final chapter in 1 John, the apostle continues, as he has been doing, identifying characteristics of believers. And as we've previously seen, John spends a significant amount of time contrasting true Christian faith and belief against the heresy that was coming against the church through Gnosticism. In this epistle of 1 John has proven thus far to be a very, a very black and white picture of Christianity, a very black and white picture of what true faith looks like in Christ. And we've seen this time and time again in this epistle. For instance, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, he says this, The one who says he is in the light yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Black and white, right? There isn't any ambiguity in that text. In 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Again, not subject to too much translation, pretty clear. 1 John 3.10, I love this verse. By this the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Pretty clear, right? What does the one, the children of the devil look like? Anyone who doesn't practice righteousness. To practice means to habitually reside within. John's purpose in doing so is to present the believers in Christ with a stark uh, contrast of what the Gnostics were advocating. Oftentimes, we as believers need to be reminded of the truth time and time again. That is the reason that the Lord has placed pastors and teachers in the church to continue to present a clear and a compelling gospel message. As the Apostle John prepares to present a compelling closing to this epistle and coming off the great chapter 4 where we saw the agape love of God, John will sum up by showing yet again several defining characteristics of the believer in Christ. And today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 where John shows us that pure Christian faith is one of overcoming this world, overcoming this this cosmos, this fallen world system. And John shows us that there are three characteristics of an overcomer. Three characteristics of an overcomer. In our text, we're going to see that the believer or the overcomer is characterized by the following. Number one, the overcomer, the believer, has Faith in the truth. We see this in verse 1. Faith in the truth. Secondly, the believer, the overcomer, is characterized by a love for God and a love for his word. We see that in verse 2. And then lastly, we see that the believer, the overcomer, is characterized by victory over the world in verses uh, 3 to 5. 
So let's jump in as we always do. Let's jump into the text and let's see what the Lord has to say. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Anyone born of God, born again, entrusts themselves to the very truth of the gospel. Right? The first principle, the first characteristic is believers have faith in the truth. And the truth is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth is in the person of Jesus Christ. What is truth? Truth is found in Christ. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth. He doesn't say I am the way and I am a truth, one of many other truths. Jesus Christ is truth personified. And this is the cornerstone faith of the believer. That Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 2, existed in the form of God, that he was uh, born of a woman, born under the law, was uh, born of a virgin, was tempted and tried in all ways as we are, yet without sin. That he was arrested, charged with false crimes, crucified on the Pontus Pilate, died a human death, was buried, and physically rose from the dead on the third day, was seen by over 500 people, walked the earth for 40 days, and ascended to heaven that this Christ will soon come again to return to ransom his church. He will descend to rule on the earth, ultimately judging sin and the wicked, Satan and his demons, casting them into the lake of fire for eternity. God will then create a new heaven and a new earth where the righteous shall dwell with him for eternity. This is the truth. The believer has faith in this truth. The believer has entrusted himself completely to the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel. This is the only salvation is in Christ. Son of man, son of God. And those who believe this Christ, John identifies them as overcomers in verse 4. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. We've entrusted ourselves. Believers entrust themselves completely to Christ. Believers are able to overcome the evil one, overcome the evil world system, Believers overcome these not by a natural power that we have in ourselves. There's nothing innate in and of ourselves that give us the ability to overcome. Rather, it is what God has given us through faith that gives us the grace to overcome. Everybody tends to know that grace means unmerited favor. But it goes beyond that. That's not merely what grace means. Grace means unmerited favor and enablement for living. God gives us the enablement. God gives us the power. God gives us the strength to be able to overcome the world. And this is very evident if we look at the text in the second word, whoever believes. And we know what that word is, right? It's to entrust oneself. 
It's those that have fallen, those that have said, I relinquish myself, and I am going to trust myself completely and solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Believers are able to overcome. In 1 John 4, 2, John wrote this, By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And that word confess means to say the same thing with, to agree with. It's saying the same thing. So what he's saying by this, we know the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Gnostics did not, uh, the Gnostics did not confess that Christ. They confessed a different Christ. They confessed a Christ that wasn't man. They confessed a Christ that could not have died on the cross. They confessed a Christ that who, when he walked on earth, was like a phantom or took control of a human body, but wasn't the embodiment of flesh contrary to the teachings of Christ himself. So John says in 4, 2, by this we know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses says the same thing, agrees that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. Listen, I think one of the most important things today is that there's a lot of talk of God, there's a lot of talk of Jesus, there's a lot of talk of religion, but you must have ears to hear who is the God they're talking of, who is the Christ that they're speaking of. Listen, it is faith in this truth that overcomes the world. The believer is born again, as Peter Peter states, of seed which is imperishable. That's what the believer is born again with. And that, that seed will not fade away. And because it will not fade away, the believer perseveres in Christ. That although believers, and listen well, believers may stumble and fall. And we do. I don't know anybody who's been perfect, right? Believers stumble and fall. But true believers will not deny Christ. And Christ will cause him to honor him until his death. John makes this abundantly clear in verse 4 of chapter 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I think there's such reassurance in that. John MacArthur makes this great statement. He says, Christians are victorious overcomers from the moment of salvation when they are granted a faith that will never fail to embrace the gospel. They may experience times of doubt, But true saving faith will never fail because those who possess it have in Christ triumphed over every foe. If you are in Christ, what an encouragement is that? That God has enabled the believer to hold fast to him through trial, through persecution, through illness, through poverty, through riches, through success. 
that God has enabled the believer to hold fast to him because he, he has equipped us. He has enabled us. He has given us that blessing of faith to hold on to these truths. True Christian faith can be summarized by the character of Job who cried out, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so we see the first characteristic of an overcomer is faith in the truth. And that truth is in the person of Christ and in the Word of God. The second characteristic, a love for God and a love for His Word, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Perhaps the greatest characteristic of a believer and an overcomer is a genuine love for God. A genuine love for God. Not a knowledge of God only. Not certain facts about God. But a genuine love for God. As well as a love for others and a love for His Word and His commandment. Listen, this one truth is written about throughout the Scripture. I mean, I could have given you 50, 60 verses easy that speak to this. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament and runs all the way through the New Testament. This is evident in the first church. This is evident in the early church. This is evident throughout church history as God has caused men and women to hold fast to the Word of God, to endure to the Word of God. Why? Not because they were bold. Not because they were overly courageous. Why? Because they loved God. And they considered God and their love for God greater than themselves. Listen to the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6.4. You should know this. This is the Shema. Notice the commandment that Moses gives Israel. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. What a tall order. Don't just acquiesce and go, I do that. You hear what he says? We are to love the Lord God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. We're not to trifle with God. We are to love him and to pour everything, all of our affection into the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Joshua 22, 5. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Now here it is. Observe it. What are we to observe? Observe. 
to love the Lord, Yahweh, to love the Lord, Yahweh, in all caps, to love the Lord your God, and walk in all his ways, and keep his commandments, and hold fast to him, and to serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul. Listen to 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And even our Lord Jesus echoed this in Matthew 22, verses 36, uh, um, 36 and 37. Our Lord Jesus, when asked what is the greatest commandment, responded. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He went on to say, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is, listen, I know this is a tall order. And if you consider the world today, how many things in the world are there in the world that cause us distraction to take our eyes away from the things of God and to put our eyes on ourselves, to satisfy our satisfactions, to be justified in our rights, to ignore our wrongs, to satisfy our lust, whether they be a lust for power, a lust for money, a lust for things. But this is why we have the Word of God. This is why we have the church, that we would come back to these central truths. We would come back and we would empty ourselves of ourselves and come to the place where we love the Lord with all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul. Love for God is paramount in the believer. Love for God is characteristic of the believer. Love for God and a love for others, especially in the church, is the mark of the believer. The church is to be a place of love for God and a love for others. God commands us to love others. If we love God, we will also love his word. We will love his commandments. How do we love his word? By submitting to the word of God. By observing his word and keeping his word. Listen, Jesus made the following statements. Rather interesting. You've heard these before. These aren't novel. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So who will enter the kingdom of heaven? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 12, 50. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. James 1, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word who delude themselves. As a matter of fact, James makes some interesting comments here in chapter 2 of his epistle. He speaks a lot about hearing the word of God versus doing the word of God. He says of those who hear... In verses 23 and 24, he says they're like a man looking in a mirror that when he walks away, he forgets what he looks like. He contrasts, he contrasts that with the doer of the word of God. In verse 25, the one who loves the word of God, James states, abides by it. And we've seen that word abide before all over 
1 John? To reside within, to perpetuate within. He calls them effectual doers. Of this person, he states that this person shall be blessed by God. He goes on to state in chapter 2 that faith without works is a dead faith. Now listen, I don't understand why this chapter is so controversial because I think it is so crystal clear he is not talking about working your way to heaven and working your way to grace. What James is saying, and it is abundantly clear, that genuine faith manifests, it produces good works. Good works are the result of genuine faith. We must never be content if we say intellectually, I I give mental agreement to the facts about Christ, but they're not transforming us. They're not changing us. The new birth is about regeneration. We're born again. And in that being born again, God has equipped us with spiritual gifts, and God has equipped us with a love for, for the brothers, and God has equipped us to be able to effectively do the work of the ministry and the Word of God. Love for God, love for God's Word, love for others characterizes the believer. Listen, even our Lord in the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, right? He made this so clearly when he, when he prayed, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The Apostle Paul echoed this as he told the church in Ephesus, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. True love for God fills our heart with a love for God, with a love for His Word and love for others. And it characterizes the believer in Christ. And it should characterize the church of Christ. Have we not seen this in chapter 4 of that great, of the chapter 4 of 1 John, that great chapter on the agape love of God, how we prefer to love, how we choose to love, how we could be closest to God as we love one another. Matter of fact, John says in chapter, in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. So we see that the believer is characterized by faith in the truth. We see that the believer is characterized by a love for God and for his word. And there's a third element that the believer is characterized, and that is believers are characterized by victory over the world. Look at verses um, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Hey, believers have victory over the world. And I know that it so often seems to be the case that that statement is not true. It seems today, does it not? 
that the world has victory over the believer. But it is the believer in Christ who has overcome the world. He has overcome the world by their faith. They have overcome the world because death no longer has victory over over them. They have overcome the world because it is the believers in Christ that are going to rule and reign with Christ. So we have overcome the world. We have overcome the sting of the world. And we see this in the text so far. And this becomes evident. It becomes evident in our faith in Jesus Christ, in our love for God, in our loving His Word and keeping His commandment with joy. When this is lived out in belief, this testifies to the world of the difference between believers and unbelievers. It testifies to the world. Here's a bulletin. The world hates that testimony. It hates it. If you're living right for Christ, if you're a believer for Christ, if you stand for righteousness, if you stand for the things of God, by and large, you're not universally going to be accepted, right? There's going to be times when people are going to look at you and they're going to pass comments. But that does not matter. Because you're living, if you're living in that manner, you're living in that manner because you love God. And you seek to please Him. And you seek to serve God. It's the believer's faith in the Son of God that transforms a person's life. That gives him victory in a fallen world. It is living out the gospel. It is serving Christ. It is serving in the church. In serving God that believers find their contentment and their joy. So many times people, you know, may say, well, I don't have a joy, I don't have a passion, I don't have a contentment. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. You want to know what your, your purpose is? Start by serving others, reaching out, blessing others, ministering to others. Find where there's a need, jump into it, and satisfy that need. And as we saw in chapter 4 of 1 John, don't expect reciprocation. Don't say, I jumped into this person's life, I expected a need, and therefore I respected reciprocation. Do it wholly and heartedly as serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we to think that if we are to serve our Lord Jesus Christ with a pure and unadulterated heart, if we are to serve and remain committed to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is our greatest satisfaction, that we will not find contentment and joy? It doesn't mean he'll always be happy. Happiness happens because of circumstances. You can be happy one day and you can be miserable another day. Good Lord knows that that's the truth. But joy is eternal. What does the psalmist say? In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand is pleasures forevermore. That is truth. We don't need to find that in things. We don't need to find that in processes. 
If we are truly believers, if we're truly truly following Christ, then in our service to Christ, in our devotion of Christ, we can find that joy and that, that beauty. Spend time in the presence of the Lord. We give time to so many other different things. Do we give time to the Lord? I'm going to get alone. I'm going to get alone with God. I'm just going to let my mind dwell on God. I'm going to lift up and I'm going to exalt God. I often say, come before the Lord. When you have time alone with the Lord, come before the Lord. And here's a novel thing. Do not ask for anything for yourself. Come before the Lord and just find and just thank him and praise him and magnify him and glorify him and, and testify of his good. Testify of his worth. The Lord delights in praise. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. God will meet you in a mighty and in a special way when we're before the Lord and say, Lord, I come with nothing, nothing, nothing but to give you glory, to give you honor, to give you praise. Lord, I love you. I'm so undeserving. I don't deserve it, but I'm here and I love you. And you could pray that prayer in the best times of your life when you're up on the mountaintop and you don't think it could get any better. And you could pray that prayer down in the valley when you're broken, when you're, when you're crushed by life and you're crushed by the circumstances of life. You can pray that prayer and you can pray it in faith saying, God, I believe that you are still worthy despite my pain. Oh, church, that we would get back to the praying of God, that we would get back to what the old saints of God used to say, that we would wear out our knees in prayer. It just seems so often today that prayer is just a list of a few things that come to our mind. Oh, Lord, bless this, bless that. Lord, I need this, I need that. But if you read the old saints, man, these people knew how to pray. Get a hold of a good book if you don't have it already, The Valley of the Vision. Read the prayers of the Puritans. Read the depth with which these people prayed. Get alone. You want victory in the world? You want victory over the world? Get alone with God and pray. It's because of this that the Apostle Paul could say in Romans chapter 8, He makes this great statement. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So man, that verse is bantered about. It is thrown about by people who are not conquerors. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are the things that Paul is referring to? And in Romans 8, Paul tells the believer in Christ, if Christ is for us, Who can be against us in verse 31? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ in verse uh, verse 31? Paul states in verse 33 that he is convinced, he is persuaded, fully, thoroughly, completely persuaded that nothing is going to separate us. Nothing will separate the believer from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Listen, it is faith that overcomes, faith that sustains, 
faith that demonstrates, faith that testifies to the world and to other Christians that we belong to Christ and that we are children of God. Believers' faith contradicts the world, clashes with the world system, and subsequently is maligned by the world and hated by the world. But faith is given to us by God. To the believer, it is this faith, this faith in God, faith in Christ, faith in the gospel, faith in the word of God, faith in salvation, found only in Jesus Christ, that causes the believers to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. Listen, I I just want to make something crystal clear. Because again, faith is something also that gets misconstrued at times. Christian faith is not convincing ourselves that something is true. You know, it's not like the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. It's not that. That's not Christian faith. We don't have to convince ourselves that something is true. Christian faith is being convinced of truth. Convinced of God's Word, convinced of Christ, convinced of our right standing of God because of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Christian faith is convinced of God's love for the believer, convinced in a desire to do that which is pleasing to God in service and pleasing to others. Listen, Christian faith is convinced of the new birth. It's convinced of the gospel truth. It's convinced of the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it is that persuasion, it is that truth that enables believers to be victorious over the world. If it were not for those things, how could we ever have victory over this fallen in corrupt world. That is why the believer has victory over the world. Because God has birthed in the believer that awesome, that wonderful gift of faith. So the question now becomes, what does this have to do with me? As we've seen today, John shows us three characteristics of an overcomer. One, faith in the truth. Two, a love for God and His Word and a love for others. And three, victory over the world. As a result, believers in Christ can have confidence in what Paul says, what God, Christ has begun in us, He will continue to do so until the day of Jesus Christ. So how does this this play out in our lives? You know, one of the responses is for us to examine ourselves in light of the Scriptures. That's the first place we begin. But I want to close with a text And that text is Revelation chapter 3. And it's verse 12. Revelation 3.12. 
And I, I want to bring this to a culmination, and I, I pray that, that this will make sense. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to the church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia was the faithful church. It was the church that it was said, although ye be of little power, I will spare you from that great hour of testing that is to come upon the earth. Read in your Bibles with me, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from heaven uh, from my God and my new name. I want, I want you to notice particularly what God has in store for the overcomer. The overcomer, the believer. Look at that verse. The first thing we see for the overcomer is, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar speaks of permanence. It speaks of stability. It speaks of immovability, right? A pillar is firm. It's designed to hold something up. So the Lord Jesus Christ says to the overcomer, to the believer, guess what? I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple. The overcomer will not be moved, but is held by God. Listen, there's no more fleeing. There's nowhere else to go. No more seeking other things or other gods. The believer is secure, immovable, and strong in Christ. That's the first point. The second point, the Lord Jesus Christ says, and I will write on him the name of my God. Writing the name of God on the believer, it's a sign of possession. They are mine. They are mine. He's going to write upon the believer the name of God. It states that the believer belongs to God, is owned by God, is God's property. Notice this. Number one, you're a pillar. You're immovable. You're secure. You're strong. Number two, he writes upon them the name of my God. This is my possession. Paul says, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit that was given to you as a sign, as a pledge that you are God's. So look what God has in store for the overcomer. Here's a third truth. Not only is he going to write on him the name of my God, but look at the third truth. And I'm going to, he's going to write on them, and the name of the city of my God. Listen, this identifies citizenship. Citizenship. We belong, the believer, the overcomer, belongs in the city of God. You know, in the, in the ancient days, if someone was convicted of a, a heinous crime, right, they had official registers. And if someone was convicted of murder, if they were convicted of some kind of terrible crime, what the what the civil legislators would do is upon the conviction of that crime, they would wipe their name out of the register of the city. 
They were no longer residents. They no longer had rights in the city. Their name was blotted out. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Where the Lord says, I will not blot your name out. But what's in store for the overcomer? I'm going to write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. You belong. And not only do you belong, but you belong with me. You have overcome. And the most amazing, the most glorious truth about it is you overcame because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Oh, because of Christ, the believer in Christ is immovable, stable, a possession of God a citizen of the holy city of God. Listen, we love because he first loved us. And what a glorious truth. What a glorious truth that we can have that assurance that we belong. So the question becomes, does what we read describe you? Do you have that love for God? Do you love Him with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul? Listen, I know that's a tall order. But we must, if we are believers, we must pursue And we must serve. And we must continue to go forward. Why? Because God will give us the grace to be able to do it and we'll find all of our joy and all of our contentment in Him. Even our Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6.33, what did He say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all things shall be added unto you. So, in light of the Scriptures... We need to ask, are we rooted in faith? Are we rooted in the love of God? Are we rooted in the love for others? Do we have victory over the world? And even more importantly, as we approach the table of the Lord, and these things may not be true in your life, will you repent? Will you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, the only one, who could have paid your penalty, the only one who can grant you new life in Christ, the very one who died, endured the wrath of God upon the cross, was buried, and physically rose again on the third day, and has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, And praise God, waiting for a day when there'll be a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet blast of God, 
And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which shall remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. And we pray that, Father, Lord God, that if there be any here who know not